Hello and welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum podcast. My name is Tane Danger, and I'm director of the forum. This is our program with Emily Hanford, longtime education reporter, correspondent for APM Reports, and the creator of the podcast, Sold a Story. The Westminster Town Hall Forum is based out of Westminster Presbyterian Church in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, Minnesota. Our mission is to present voices of conscience addressing the issues of the day from an ethical perspective. Today's program with Emily Hanford was recorded in front of a live audience at Westminster Presbyterian on September 12, 2023. The first voice you'll hear is the Town Hall Forum moderator, Tim Hart Anderson. Emily Hanford is a senior correspondent and producer for APM Reports, the documentary and investigative reporting group at American Public Radio. Her work has appeared on NPR, in the New York Times, and in other publications. For the past several years, she has been reporting on teaching children to read. Her 2018 podcast episode, Hard Words, Why Aren't Kids Being Taught to Read?, won the inaugural Public Service Award from EWA. Her most recent reporting project is the podcast, Sold a Story, How Teaching Kids to Read Went So Wrong. Hanford and the rest of the Sold a Story team won a National Edward R. Murrow Award for Best Podcast in the Radio Network Division. Earlier this year, the podcast won an IRE Award and was nominated for a Peabody. And we're delighted that she's here today to share some of her reporting. Please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Emily Hanford. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I am very happy to be here and part of this esteemed forum. Thank you for the invitation. And it's a great audience out there. Thanks for coming. What I am going to do today is tell you the story of how I got interested in how children learn to read. This is not something I had thought much about until a few years ago. Reading came pretty easily to me, and it came pretty easily to my kids, too. I have two boys. They're now 23 and 20. When my boys went off to school, I didn't think about how they were going to be taught to read. I certainly didn't think about whether they were going to be taught to read. I assumed they would. And like I said, they did learn to read without much trouble. In fact, my younger son was reading the Magic Treehouse chapter books on his own a few months into kindergarten, and I have no idea how he learned to read. It just kind of seemed to happen. And school was a good experience for him. It was for my older son, too, and it was for me. I loved school. And I think it had something to do with the fact that reading came pretty easily to us. But reading doesn't come easily to a lot of people, far more people than I realized. And it doesn't have to do with intelligence. There are lots of really smart people who struggle to learn how to read. They can 
learn to read, but they need someone to teach them how to do it. I didn't know this until a few years ago. So let me just tell you a little bit more about myself. I've been an education reporter at American Public Media since 2008. And in my reporting on education, I've been particularly interested in how family income generally and how poverty in particular affect educational outcomes and opportunities. And I've been really interested in how people learn and the findings from cognitive science and how those findings are making their way or not into schools and classrooms. Almost all of the reporting that I did was focused on secondary and post-secondary education. Until a few years ago, when I realized that early reading instruction is where it is at if you are interested in educational equity, opportunity, and how people learn. So the very first reporting project that I did about all of this was back in 2017. It was an audio documentary and a podcast called Hard to Read. And it's about why students with dyslexia have a hard time getting the help they need in school. I didn't know anything about dyslexia. I didn't know I knew people who had dyslexia, but of course I do, we all do. I was hearing the same story though from parents all over the country. And here's how the story goes. Our child started school and we knew something wasn't quite right. We went to the teacher and the teacher said, don't worry, make sure you read lots of books to him, everything's gonna be fine. But reading was really hard for this child. He just didn't seem to get it. We went to the first grade teacher and the teacher said, don't worry, all kids learn differently, he's gonna catch up. But he didn't seem to be making a lot of progress. By second grade, he was avoiding reading. He was telling us he didn't wanna to go to school. And the teacher said, we just haven't found your child the right book yet. And it went on and on like this. The parents saying, something's not right. The school saying, don't worry, it'll all come together in time. And here's what eventually happens if the family has time and money, especially money. They pay for private testing. This private testing typically costs thousands of dollars. They might start paying for private tutoring, which is very quickly more thousands of dollars. They might hire an educational consultant or an attorney or both to help them fight for what their child needs in school. All of this is not just expensive, it's exhausting, it's frustrating, and it's really, really, really hard. And the parents begin to realize that their child may never get the instruction he needs in school, or he's not gonna get it fast enough because now he's like eight or nine or 10 years old, and he's starting to hate school. And he's falling behind on other subjects because he can't read very well. And maybe he's beginning to act out in school, or maybe this is manifesting as depression and anxiety and withdrawal. And this is when, if they have the resources, the family might pull their child out of public school. Maybe they homeschool him, or maybe the family comes up with the tens of thousands of dollars that it can cost to send the child to a specialized private school if there's a specialized private school nearby, and that's a big if in a lot of parts of this country. What I started to realize is that if you can come up with the money to pay for it, you can probably find a way for your struggling reader to be taught how to read. But if you don't have the money and your child is not learning to read in school, what do you do? 
The implications of this are stunning. If you're from a low or even a moderate income family, there's no safety net, there's no backup if you're not being taught to read in school. As one mom put it to me, getting help for a struggling reader is a rich man's game. So we're talking about reading, which is a most basic fundamental skill. It's the foundation upon which academic learning gets built. That is a rich man's game. So how did that happen? How is it allowed to continue? So this led me to the next reporting project called Hard Words, which came out in 2018. And this one's about core reading instruction. So not what needs to be done for struggling readers in particular, but rather what do all children need to learn to become good readers? And it turns out there's a whole lot of research on this. Thousands of studies conducted in labs and classrooms all over the world in lots of different languages over the past 50 years or so. And the bottom line from all of this research is that what kids with dyslexia need to learn to become good readers is not substantially different from what all kids need to learn to become good readers. So kids with dyslexia will need a more intense dose of a certain kind of instruction, but all kids can benefit from the kind of instruction that kids with dyslexia desperately need. So hard words focus quite a bit on phonics instruction. And it focused on phonics instruction for a couple of reasons. One, when people are fighting about reading, they are usually fighting about phonics. It's kind of like the lighter fluid in the wars about reading. The other reason that I focused on phonics instruction is because one of the things that scientists figured out is that phonics skills are critical when it comes to becoming a good reader. Why is that? Because the starting point for reading is sound. What a child has to figure out to become a skilled reader is that the words that she hears and knows how to say are made up of speech sounds. Those are called phonemes. And she has to understand that in an alphabetic language like English, phonemes are represented by various letters and combinations of letters. This is something that human beings have to be taught. Reading skill does not develop naturally in response to being read to. This is one of the things that the scientific research has revealed. Learning to read is not like learning to talk. If you immerse a child in an environment of spoken language, unless she has a hearing problem or a severe developmental issue, she is going to learn to speak her native language. Not so with reading. Immersing children in a literate environment is not enough. We aren't born with brains that are wired to read. We can get really, really good at reading, but our brains aren't designed to do it. That is because human beings invented written language just a few thousand years ago, which is really recently in the course of human history. Children need to be taught that the sounds in the words they know how to say are represented by letters and combinations of letters. They need to be taught how that works. Some children need very little instruction, like me and my kids, but some children need a lot of instruction. And again, it doesn't have to do with intelligence. Lots of very smart kids have a hard time learning how to read. The evidence suggests that more than half of kids, maybe around 60% or so, are not going to learn to read very well unless they are explicitly taught how to do it. And like I said, some kids are going to need a whole lot of explicit instruction. But a key thing I think for everyone to understand is that all kids can benefit from good explicit instruction. 
Even those kids who may not need it can become better readers and especially better spellers if they're taught how to read and spell. So no one is arguing, no one is arguing that phonics instruction is all children need to become good readers. It is not. There is much more to teaching a child how to read than teaching phonics. To understand why, it's really helpful to understand how kids learn to read. How do they learn to read? A really good place to begin is with something called the simple view of reading. Often when I give talks, I show a slide of this simple view of reading. But we have radio listeners who can't see me, so I'm going to have you visualize this in your mind. The simple view of reading is an equation. And it doesn't say that reading is simple. To the contrary, reading is very complex. The simple view is a simple equation to understand a complex process. So the simple view was first proposed in 1986, when I was in high school, by two researchers who were trying to clarify the role of decoding in reading comprehension. Because everyone agrees that the goal of reading and the goal of teaching a child to read is so that they can comprehend text. Everyone agrees on that. The question is, how does a little kid get there? So here's the equation. You can start seeing this in your mind. You can even close your eyes. The simple view says that reading comprehension, reading comprehension equals language comprehension times decoding ability. So RC, reading comprehension, equals language comprehension times decoding. So this is multiplication, not addition. Remember that, it's important. The simple view says that reading comprehension is the product of two things. One is your ability to decode words. So you see the letter string R-E-A-D-I-N-G, and you know that that string of letters represents the word reading. The other part of the equation is your language comprehension. So that is your ability to understand spoken language, we're not talking about your ability to read text. Language comprehension is your ability to understand meaning when someone is talking or when text is being read out loud to you. So for example, when someone says to you, she is reading the book, you know what the verb means in that sentence, you know what she's doing. The simple view, back to this equation, it says that if you have really good language comprehension skills but zero decoding skills, your reading comprehension will be zero because zero times anything is zero. The simple view also says that if you have really good decoding skills, but you have very poor language comprehension skills, you just don't know the meaning of that many words in your spoken language, your reading comprehension will not be very good either. So let's think about how this applies to learning how to read. Most kids, when they're entering school, have very little when it comes to the decoding part of that equation. They have zero or close to zero when it comes to the D in the simple view of reading equation but they do have something when it comes to the language comprehension part of the equation. In other words, when children enter school, they tend to know the meaning of quite a few words, but they don't know how to decode those words yet. So this is why people who are familiar with the science of reading call for an emphasis on phonics instruction in the early grades. Because if the goal is to get to reading comprehension, and you have a bunch of five and six-year-olds who have language comprehension skills, but virtually no decoding skills, what do you need to do to help those children get to reading comprehension? You need to help those children develop decoding skills. So what you want to focus on with little kids is getting their decoding skills up to their level of language comprehension. 
Now, the simple view equation clearly shows that focusing only on decoding would be a huge mistake because it's only part of the equation. As and I'm sure you're, you know, kids come to school with very different language comprehension skills, right? Some kids know the meaning of lots and lots of words. There are very precocious five-year-olds out there, right? And some kids have far smaller vocabularies. So reading instruction that aligns with the simple view of reading has to focus on the language comprehension part of the equation, too. So that means lessons and activities that expand children's oral vocabularies. I was in a first grade classroom where reading instruction was deliberately designed to be aligned with this simple view of reading. And what I saw in this classroom was explicit phonics instruction in one part of the reading instruction, right? And the kids were actually broken into small groups depending on the level of their decoding skills because that can vary a lot too. Another part of the reading instruction was explicit vocabulary lessons and lots of reading out loud by the teacher. And the words that the kids had learned were posted on cards all over the classroom. And they included words like gigantic, uh, sorry, extraordinary, neighborly, and ridiculous. So those are not words that the vast majority of first graders are going to be able to decode, and they shouldn't be expected to. But the first graders in this class were learning the pronunciation and meaning of all those words, so that when they're able to decode them, they're going to know what they mean. By the way, every single child in this class, this is a first grade class in California, spoke a language other than English at home. And for several kids in the class, English was actually their third language. So as I said, this simple view of reading equation was proposed as a theoretical model back in 1986. And the basics of the model have been confirmed over and over and over again since then by research. And I think the simple view is really helpful because it disentangles some of the stuff that has been the most contentious in the debates about reading. So in what's known as the whole language view and in the balanced literacy view more recently, the focus right from the start of reading instruction should be on getting kids to focus on the meaning of what they're reading. Whole language and balanced literacy are meaning emphasis approaches to reading instruction, as opposed to what's referred to as a code emphasis approach, which emphasizes the decoding skills at the beginning of reading instruction. So early reading instruction that aligns with the scientific research is a code emphasis approach so that kids can get to meaning. Everyone agrees that meaning is the goal. And the question is, how does a little kid get there? So let me turn now to what I learned about how children were being taught to read in many American schools. So they do usually get some phonics instruction. They are taught some things about letters and sounds. But kids are also often taught other strategies for figuring out written words. So sounding out the word is one of the things they're taught to do, but they're also taught to do things like, look at the picture, look at the first letter of the word, think of something that makes sense. Sometimes kids come home with bookmarks that have these strategies on them. The strategies are on posters that are in their classrooms. They get sent home to uh, parents and kids' backpacks. A lot of times you'll see these strategies illustrated with cute little animals. There's eagle eye to help kids remember to look at the pictures to figure out what the word might be. 
there's try and lion for trying a word that makes sense, and there's Skippy the Frog to remind kids that they can just skip the word, get the gist of the sentence, and move on. So I started to realize that these word reading strategies were everywhere, and I wanted to know what are these strategies all about? What's the idea about how reading works that those strategies are based on? What's the idea about how kids learn to read? Because it turns out there's an idea here. There is a theory about how people read. How do we do that? How do we read? That is something that no one really knew the answer to for centuries. And back in the 1960s, before a lot of the scientific research on reading that I mentioned earlier, before that had been done, there were some education professors who came up with a theory about how people read. They were trying to figure it out, trying to help the, use this theory to inform instruction. This theory came to be known by some people as queuing or three queuing. Not everyone calls it that. But the idea here, the theory from the 1960s, is that readers, skilled readers, use different kinds of information or cues to identify words as they're reading. The basic idea behind the cueing theory is that readers don't have to sound out written words to know what they are. They can sound out the words, but they don't have to because there are these other strategies that they can use to figure out the words. They can do things like look at the first letter of the word, use the context, think of a word that makes sense. So kids are taught those strategies because the idea is to teach kids to do what good readers do, and that was the idea about what good readers do. The problem is that is not the way that skilled reading works. This is not, it turns out, how you read when you are a good reader. So I did a reporting project on this in 2019. It was called At a Loss for Words. And At a Loss for Words is about this cueing theory and about how this theory, how this idea, and the word reading strategies based on this idea became foundational in reading curriculum assessments and intervention programs that are popular in American schools that say they use a balanced literacy approach to teaching reading. But the cueing theory, as I said, isn't right. And cognitive scientists actually showed this back in the 1970s and 80s. Skilled readers do not use cues and context to identify the words as they're reading. In fact, what scientists discovered, and they were surprised to discover this, is that this is how struggling readers read. Struggling readers often have a really hard time with the word identification. Too many of the words that they come across are little mysteries, series of letters that they don't know and they can't quite figure out. So they use a bunch of other strategies to try to figure out what the words say. When they come across a word they don't know, they look at the first letter, first few letters, they try to think of a word that makes sense. In other words, they use the context to try to come up with a word that fits. And when they cannot figure out what a word is using context clues, they skip the word. And often, they can get the gist of what they're reading this way. But using context, guessing, and skipping words, this is not what reading is like when you are a skilled reader. What cognitive scientists figured out is that a key difference between skilled readers and unskilled readers is that skilled readers can immediately and accurately recognize words. They don't need to guess or predict or use context. And skilled readers know tens of thousands of words instantly on sight. In fact, if you are a skilled reader, your brain has gotten so good at reading words that you process the word book faster than you process a picture of a book. So how did your brain get so good at that? 
it wasn't designed to do it. It happens through this process that gets referred to as orthographic mapping. And I think it's really important to know a little bit about orthographic mapping to understand why teaching kids how to decode words is so important and for understanding why teaching kids those word reading strategies, those cueing strategies, is not a good idea. So here is a quick and simplified explanation of orthographic mapping. Orthographic mapping is the process that goes on in our brains that we use, not consciously, to store printed words in our long-term memory. So here's how you do it. You attend closely to how a written word is spelled, and then you link that sequence of letters to the word's pronunciation and its meaning. So for a very basic example, a child knows the meaning and pronunciation of the word cat. The word gets orthographically mapped to her memory when she links the sounds cat to the written word cat. So that requires an awareness of the speech sounds and words, phonemic awareness. It requires an understanding of how those sounds are represented by letters, phonics. So you got to have phonemic awareness and phonics to orthographically map words into your long-term memory. And once a word has been orthographically mapped to your memory, you know it instantly on sight. In fact, you cannot suppress your ability to read the word. You don't have to consciously sound out the word when you see it, but you know the word instantly because at some point, maybe when you were six or seven years old, you successfully sounded out that word and you linked the spelling of the word in your mind with the meaning and the pronunciation of that word. By about second grade, a typically developing reader who has good phonics skills needs just a few exposures to a word through its pronunciation, its spelling, and its meaning, all three things, and bam, that word is mapped to her memory. The more words a reader maps to her memory this way, the more she can focus on the meaning of what she's reading. She's not using her brain power to identify the words, she's using her brain power to understand what she's reading. And that's the goal, for readers to understand what they're reading. But when teachers use the cueing system, when they teach those word reading strategies, they may actually be impeding the orthographic mapping process. So I met a literacy coach in Oakland, California, who came to see that teaching the cueing strategies was actually making it harder for many of her students to learn how to read. The coach's name is Margaret Goldberg. She was hired by the Oakland Unified School District back in 2015 to teach something called Leveled Literacy Intervention, or LLI. LLI is a program to help struggling readers, and it does include some phonics instruction. But the program is rooted in the idea that letters are one way to figure out a word. So, kids are also taught that when they come to a word they don't know, they can use pictures and context to try to come up with a good guess. So, Margaret Goldberg started teaching using the LLI program, and at about the same time, she found a bunch of unopened materials sitting on a shelf in her school, and it was a systematic phonics and phonemic awareness program that teaches kids that when they come to a word they don't know, they sound it out, and it doesn't teach them the cueing strategies. And in this phonics and phonemic awareness program, beginning readers practice in what's known as decodable books that contain words with spelling patterns they have already been taught. So they don't have to use the cueing strategies. They don't have to guess the words. They've been taught how to sound them out. Margaret started teaching some of her groups of students 
the LLI with the cueing, and some of her groups of kids, she taught systematic phonics and phonemic awareness without the cueing strategies. And she started to notice differences between the two groups of kids, not just in how well they were reading, but in the way they approached their reading. So she and a colleague recorded first graders talking about what makes them good readers. So in one of the videos, you see two little girls. One of the girls was being taught phonics and no cueing, and the other was being taught the cueing strategies. And the teacher in the video asks the girls, what makes you good readers? And the girls think about it for a moment. And the girl who was being taught the cueing strategy says, I look at the picture and I read it. The teacher follows up, tries to get the girls to say a little more. The girl being taught the cueing strategy says once again that she reads by looking at the pictures. And the other girl, who was being taught the systematic phonics and phonemic awareness program, she says in this very definitive little voice that she reads by looking at the words and sounding them out. So the literacy coach, Margaret Goldberg, was seeing this over and over again in these two groups of students. One group was taking away from their reading instruction that reading is about looking closely at words and sounding them out. And the other group of children were being taught that when you come to a word you don't know, you don't have to look carefully at the word and try to connect the spelling with the pronunciation and the meaning. Instead, you can look away from the word. You can look at the pictures, you can look at the other words in the sentence. Basically, you search around for clues to help you identify the word. But remember, orthographic mapping requires you to look carefully at words so your brain links the spelling with the sounds and the meaning. And those cueing strategies teach kids to look away from the words. Here's what Margaret Goldberg said to me about the kids who were in her LLI groups who were being taught those cueing strategies. She said, I did lasting damage to those kids. It was so hard to ever get them to stop looking at a picture to guess what a word would be. It was so hard to ever get them to slow down and sound a word out because they had had this experience of knowing that you predict what you read before you read it. As Margaret was noticing the differences between her two groups of students, she was discovering all of this scientific research on reading. It was not stuff she knew or had ever been taught. And she was shocked by what she was learning and how different it was from what the curriculum materials were telling her about how reading works. But what Margaret was learning from the curriculum materials about how reading works is what a lot of teachers were learning about how reading works. Because instructional approaches that include these cueing strategies were all over American classrooms. This was a really big aha moment for me. What I realized is that teachers in balanced literacy classrooms are learning an idea about reading and how it works from their curriculum materials. The idea is that beginning readers don't have to sound out written words. They can sound out the words. That's one strategy they can use, but they can use these other strategies. So in a balanced literacy classroom, what you typically find is some phonics instruction, but kids are also taught to look at the first letter, look at the picture, think of something that makes sense. I think these strategies were appealing to a lot of teachers because they solve a big problem. And here's the problem. Lots of teachers don't know how to teach kids how to sound out written words. 
According to survey data and research and interviews I've done, lots of teachers are not taught how kids learn to read in their teacher preparation programs, and teachers are not taught what they need to know about how written English works to be able to teach it well to little children. Teachers want to teach their students how to read. Of course they do. But teachers are very often not well-equipped by their teacher preparation programs to do that. Far too many of them get to the classroom and realize they don't know how kids learn to read and they don't know how to teach kids to read. And so those strategies, Eagle Eye and Try and Lion and Skippy the Frog, they're kind of a lifeline. They are something to teach. They are a way to help kids get the words. It's a way to try to get kids started, to get them into books, to get them reading. But is it really reading? That is the focus of the most recent project, the Sold a Story podcast, which came out last October. So it's six episodes, and there are two bonus episodes that came out in May. The whole thing is about five hours of listening, and it's about one idea. The whole thing, one idea. The idea is beginning readers don't have to sound out words. They can, but they don't have to, because there are other ways to figure out what the words say. That is a foundational idea in balanced literacy. And in the United States, according to surveys, most schools have been doing balanced literacy. And balanced literacy sounds great. Balance is what you want in early reading instruction. You want a balance between those two parts of the simple view of reading, the word reading part and the language comprehension part. The problem with balanced literacy is that there is a theory of how kids learn to read the words, and the theory isn't right. By telling kids that they can sound out the words, but they don't have to, balanced literacy ends up teaching kids the strategies of struggling readers. Now, some kids are fine because learning to sound out written words isn't that hard for them. A lot of sitting on a caregiver's lap with books and a little bit of instruction, it's enough. And they figure out pretty quickly that sounding out the words is the most effective and efficient way to know what a word is. Now, they do use context to figure out the meaning of words. This is really important. Good readers do it all the time. You come across a word you don't know, you sound it out. Is that a word I know? Maybe, maybe not. Let me think about what this word might mean based on the context here. This is how good readers use context. But struggling readers are using context all the time, not just to figure out the meanings of words, but to identify the words themselves. Reading is kind of a constant guessing game. And as a result, it's slow and it's taxing and it's really hard to focus on the meaning of what you're reading because you're using your brain power just to identify the words. Many, many reading tutors have told me that their biggest challenge in helping older struggling readers is getting them to stop guessing at the words. They say the older a student is, the harder it is to break the habit. The habit has gotten really ingrained. So the most nas recent National Assessment of Educational Progress, the NAEP, it shows that 37% of all fourth graders in the United States cannot read on even a basic level. So we're not talking about proficiency here. We're talking about basic. More than a third of all fourth graders could not read on even a basic level. And it gets worse, a lot worse, when you look at kids from different demographic groups. One of the most alarming statistics, 56% of black fourth graders are below basic. 
not reading at even a basic level. When I hear people try to explain these NAEP scores, something I almost always hear is poverty. They say poverty is why kids are struggling with reading. And I am not saying that poverty has nothing to do with it. Poverty absolutely plays a role, especially on the language comprehension side of things. But this is much bigger than poverty. There are more kids struggling with reading than struggling with poverty. And by some estimates, a third of struggling readers are from college-educated families. And I think we've been blaming poverty when part of what's going on here has to do with wealth. Some kids are lucky enough to be born into families that can take care of the problem if they are not taught how to read in school. They have a safety net, and the safety net is their parents and their parents' checkbooks. Some kids are getting the instruction they need, but a lot of kids aren't. They aren't being taught how to read. This is really an equity issue. It's a civil rights issue. It's an, it's an issue that affects you. Maybe you have a child or a grandchild who is a struggling reader. Maybe you are a struggling reader. Maybe you're a teacher who is reckoning with all of this right now. So many teachers are. They didn't know. They weren't taught how kids learn to read. They didn't know this. Maybe you're like I was. You'd never really thought much about how kids learn to read because you didn't have to, because you learned easily. Your kids learned easily. You were lucky. But this affects you too. There are struggling readers in your life, whether you know it or not. For some adults, this is their biggest secret. They don't want anyone to know how hard reading is for them. This issue affects you because this is your country. This is our future. And I really think that we can do better this than this. The research shows that we can. So thank you for listening. I look forward to your questions and the conversation. Thank you. Now, Ms. Hanford, if you're ready, I will present the questions from the audience. First question has to do with the implications for democracy ah. about literacy or lack thereof in our, in our population. Wow, okay. <laughs> Start with an easy one. They're going to get harder, uh, yeah. They're going to get harder. Um, well, obviously, I gave you some of the just statistics at the end there. I think you can make those connections and conclusions on your own. I mean, I think it's... It's very obvious, actually, if you look back to the founding of public education in America, that um, a grounding idea that we are still trying to live up to is that public, good public education and educating all children is fundamental if we want a democracy to function well, if we want to continue with this democratic experiment we've got going here. I think it's critical. We live in a world full of information, full of written information. I think one of, re one of the reasons why I am so intrigued by what I've learned about the scientific research on reading and how the brain learns to read is really the context for how recent written language really is for all of us. I think that's a really profound thing to recognize and to think of just how that is accelerating. I mean, a couple hundred years ago, you didn't really need to know how to read to be able to make a good living. That is becoming less and less possible. This is absolutely fundamental and critical, not just to economic well-being and civic well-being, 
but to personal well-being. I mean, I, I have just encountered so many struggling readers for whom this is just so difficult at an emotional level. Um, there are just so many, there are no several silver bullets anywhere or in, in education, but I, I, I think one of the reasons why I've spent so much time on this issue is this is so important. And this isn't going to solve all the problems in education, but if we could do a better job with early reading instruction, I think we could really have a pretty profound impact on a lot of the other problems that we spend a lot of time and money trying to deal with in school and in society. I just think there are all kinds of things that you can trace back to early reading problems, and the research makes it really clear. In what you've said and today and in your podcast and your writings, uh, it's very clear there's a disconnect between the science about cognition and learning to read and what's being taught in so many of our schools. If that's so clear, which it appears to be, why does that disconnect continue? Why do we continue to teach children using poor methods how to read? I mean, that's the million-dollar question. Um, I mean, schools are complex. Education is complex. You know, I laid out some very simple, I think, key, key ideas that are really foundational in understanding sort of the path forward here. Um, but, but changing uh, the way kids are taught to read is difficult. Uh, there are many sort of ideas that have been embedded for a, a long time. Um, so, so really um, helping teachers understand this and then giving them the support they need to do it well, um, I think is difficult um, and is proving difficult. And there's a lot of energy right now around trying to fix this problem. And it's a complex problem. Um, it's not going to be fixed quickly. Uh, but what I, what I am hopeful about and sort of inspired by are the number of teachers in particular that I hear from all the time who didn't know this and are learning it and they, they really want to do better and they are starting to be heard uh, by the people around them and trying to get the support that they need. So the next few years, many years, is going to be really important in trying to get this right. We've tried to get this better, we've tried to get this right before, and it ha hasn't always worked, and I, I really hope this time is different. Can you talk to us a little bit about the politics of all of this? Uh, it's interesting that who is distrusting or distrustful of, uh, of science, uh, and in this case, it probably tends to be more uh, progressive-minded folks in the teaching community. Uh, what are the politics uh, doing to, the, to resolve this issue? Well, obviously the politics are part of the answer to your previous question, I think, of sometimes why this scientific research has had a hard time making it into schools. I mean, number one, scientific research has a hard time making its way into practice in any profession, including medicine, right? So there is a sort of natural thing that it takes a while for these big kind of findings that that do upset some sort of foundational ideas to really make their way in to become accepted and for people to really build new and better practices based on this information. But I, I think it's very clear to, to understand that there are some sort of big P and little p kinds of political themes um, that have been intertwined in the reading wars. And just very generally speaking, I think that sort of phonics and explicit and direct instruction and teaching little kids the sort of intricacies of how to do letters and sounds has long time been associated with sort of traditional, conservative, and then even Republican, big R Republican because of some of the ways that policy has worked over time. 
And then I think some of the more let kids discover things on their own. We don't, we, they can learn to read by reading. We need to just sort of immerse them in an environment where they can explore and pick up a lot of stuff. That was more associated with a more sort of liberal point of view. One of the things that's, of course, interesting is in all these years I've talked to so many of these cognitive scientists, and often sometimes when the recorder's going and sometimes it's, when it's not, I think, how about the politics here? Like, and these are not conservative people. <laughs> these are not Republicans by and large. These are some, they will say themselves, I'm one of the most, you know, liberal people out there, but I've been doing the scientific research and this is what it shows. And it shows that we really need to change some things about how we're teaching kids to read in school. So the politics are complex and I think this sort of, ups this is upsetting the apple cart for some people. And it's surprising and it's, you know, creating a lot of cognitive dis dissonance for people sometimes because of who they thought was in their camp and where they thought their ideas sort of fit into the scheme of things and they're sort of surprised to find that it's not quite the way they thought it was. One of our questions is about the U.S. Department of Education and policy coming out of Washington. How does that impact uh, how a child might learn to read? Well, one of the things that I think is really important to understand, whether you agree with it or not, but it's just so fundamentally built into our system, is that we are really a local control country when it comes to education in so many ways. Um, but really, at the end of the day, a lot of what a teacher does in his or her classroom, <sighs> this is kind of complicated because it's, sort of, it's sort of both and here, but um, we really do have baked into our education system the idea of local control and, and then district control, state control, and not federal control. It's actually built into when the Department of Education was first set up, which wasn't until 1979, um, that, that, that the federal government cannot tell schools what to teach. Um, so a lot of this really gets left to states and, and this is st states are still often dealing with the sort of policy of local control. Um, so the federal government has made some big efforts here. There are ways that the federal government can sort of um, try to get schools to uptake its ideas and it's usually by giving money, or, it's usually by giving, it's usually by enticing them with money. <laughs> uh, that's how the federal government does it. And I, you know, I, I don't know, I, I don't know that we have, um, just look at our politics right now. I'm not so sure we have in our near future the idea that the federal government would really take this up in a big way, and I'm not sure that's the right way to do it. Um, but I do. But we do know that there are dozens of states uh, that are uh, proposing new policies and passing new laws, and those laws are only as good as how good the laws are and whether they're followed and how they're followed. So the really important thing now is to follow that and see how those policies are playing out on the ground and in classrooms. A number of questions are coming forward and from the chat online about curriculum. Yeah. Uh, what curriculum is being used now in schools preparing teachers today in the, at this, you know, 2023? Uh, and someone asks, uh, are the companies that publish these curricula that are not supporting and incorrectly teaching, uh, are they subject to lawsuits? Uh, Tell us about the curriculum and how it might be shifting. Okay, well, um, so one of the things, and I, I <clears throat> one of the things that I think is really important is curriculum is one part of this. It's one small part of all of this. I started focusing on curriculum because what I realized, as I said in my talk, is that there are ideas in the curriculum 
about how kids learn to read. And I wanted, I sort of started to recognize that. Oh, there's a theory here. There's an idea about how this works. We need to sort of lift out that theory and that idea and show what's wrong with it. So I, so I think it's been important to move the lens towards looking at what's in the curriculum materials. A school district just buying a new curriculum isn't going to solve this problem for so many reasons. First of all, there's no perfect curriculum and there never will be one. And there doesn't even need to be one. <laughs> there doesn't need to be a perfect curriculum. This is really about whether the teachers understand what the curriculum is trying to do, uh, whether or not they get good enough training and good enough support to do the curriculum well, whether or not, you know, how, whether or not they do it. <laughs> you know, there are many school districts that are adopt new curriculums and some teachers aren't going to do it, or they're just going to do the parts of it that they like or they don't. So I think curriculum is one of many pieces that need attention, and I think the reporting that I've done has focused some of the attention on curriculum, but I would like to give sort of a moment of pause to be like, that's not the only thing we need to do here, and buying a new curriculum doesn't solve your problem. It's much deeper, thicker, more complex than that. And your research has had direct impact on uh, the development of the curriculum and the teaching that's going on in, in certain schools. And this, just in the New York Times in the last couple of days, uh, the Columbia Teachers College has closed out a program, which your research showed was not effective. Uh, can you comment on the impact your research is having on, on how reading is, is being taught these days? Yeah, this, this reporting has had a lot of impact, and I would say it's very important to put it into context. So I think I started reporting this, as I said, back in like 2017, 2018, and I started reporting on this because there was so much of this research, and there was a, there was, this research was mature enough that it was being described well in books by cognitive scientists that I could go to the library, I could buy on Amazon, I could read. The, the research had sort of matured enough and especially important, there's a very, very organized parent community of kids who are struggling with reading. And they have been pushing schools and districts, and they have been getting changes in laws over the past decade or more. I think what happened is that the reporting that we've done at American Public Media came along and did some basic explanatory journalism at first, just to explain, hey, Here's, here's some things that everyone needs to know about what the scientific research has shown and what harm is really being done to many kids around the country because they're not getting the instruction they need in school. There has been, I would say, like a momentum that has really been getting going. And since Solda's story came out, we have seen an acceleration of moves at the state level and district level to make changes. And it's true that this, the reporting has had a big impact on some of the people in the company that we focused on. And, and uh, you just mentioned the fact that the Teachers College Reading and Writing Project, which was founded by Lucy Calkins at Columbia University back in the early 1980s, has been dissolved by Columbia University. Um, and I think there is a direct line to our reporting on that happening. I'm not sure if you're aware of the, the 2023 Minnesota legislation called the Reed Act. I know a little bit about it, yeah. Okay. Uh, this is a question. There are several comments about this. There are school districts that have gone to court to argue that schools can't be required, cannot be required to teach dyslexic students to read at grade level. Why do you think schools are refusing to be accountable for teaching our kids to read? What justification have schools provided you in your investigative reporting? 
because school districts are still avoiding their responsibility to teach kids to read in school in 2023. Ugh. <laughs> and then a little frustrated face. So. Yeah. Well, I, I imagine that's probably written by one of the parents who I described at the beginning, who's had that not uncommon experience of going to school and saying something's not right here. You know, I'm just going to, I'm going to take the optimistic view here, which is I, I, I'm a big believer in knowledge and spreading accurate knowledge. I've been a journalist for my entire career, and I think this is really, really important. And I do think at core that this problem is rooted in the fact that people don't know what they need to know. Too many people in schools haven't understood how kids learn to read, so they don't know what to do when a kid is really struggling. They just don't know how to deal with it. And then, as all of us know, in all kinds of institutions, that become re when you don't know how to deal with something or you can't deal with it, there then become all kinds of ways that you can get that off your plate. There are all kinds of ways that you can say no to it, you can deny it, you can dismiss it. I think at core, that is what's happening. Uh, there is a federal law in the United States that says that kids with dyslexia and other learning differences must be able to get the instruction they need in school. And this is why it becomes about money and parents hire attorneys, which then in a system, you know, that is now having, that law is incredibly important, but that law fight sets up a fight uh, and gives reason in some cases for schools to deny things, right? So it's really complicated and I'm sure there are people in this room who have lived this story and how difficult it is. And I don't think that's a good, I wish I had a good and easy answer to that question, but my answer is always because I'm a reporter who makes an entire five-hour podcast about one idea. I think everything's complicated. <laughs> so it's surprising to me and perhaps others how you can know what you know and still be hopeful for reading in America. Oh, uh, well. Quite, uh, the last question, how, what can you tell us about why we should be hopeful and how can we be helpful in uh, making some change? Hopeful and helpful. Well, I think you could be hopeful because here we are all, uh, here we are talking about this. Um, lots of, it's getting a lot of attention. I mentioned the policy change, like there's a lot happening. There's a lot happening right now. And I guess the way that everyone can be helpful in whatever they do is to not let this go. I am so worried, I've been an education reporter for long enough that I know at least within the world of education and education policy, and I know it's true in the rest of the world, but this is the one I pay attention to. We focus on something and then we let it go. We, we, we get bored with it or we say it didn't work. I just hope any, if you, for whatever reason that you've come here today, whatever that is, don't let this one go because this is too important and I think schools can do better, but it's not gonna happen in a year or two or three or maybe five. It, this is difficult stuff. And kids struggle with reading for lots of reasons. I focused on one really core important reason, but there's a lot to getting reading instruction right. This isn't gonna be easy to do. But don't let this be the thing that we talked about in the early 2020s and now we're talking about something else. Keep at it, whatever you do. Good answer. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a rating or review and tell a friend about it. 
Our theme music was composed by Kenneth Veen and performed by the Copper Street Brass. Technical direction is provided by Keith Kopatz. Our moderator is Tim Hart Anderson. My name is Tane Danger. Thank you all so much, and we hope to see you again at the Westminster Town Hall Forum.